How big of a city? Uh, 20,000. Small city. Yeah, Small it's city. not very big. What, I mean, is that where not... the Field of Dreams was shot? Yeah. Yeah, I was from that city. Yep. Wow. Ohio. Iowa. Ohio. Ohio. Yeah. It's right on the border. Right on the border. Welcome back, everybody, to Iowa's favorite podcast, or uh, maybe I should say second favorite, considering who we have on the show today. Uh, <laughs> but th- this is a Rock Hard Caucus. Uh, it's it's one of Iowa's favorites, I'm sure. We got to be in the top five, right? I'm usually a lot more confident. Just claim about... it. Just claim it. <laughs> okay, we're the, the t- number one. We're the most famous and popular. Yeah. And if you don't agree, <laughs> prove it. Prove it. I'd like to see you try. <laughs> Uh, I'm Justin, and I've got uh, Stella and Natalie here. Uh, it's it's been a bit since folks have heard Natalie's voice, so it's a, it's special. We've got her back. I caught her with a butterfly net, and <laughs> 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 uh, but let me let me introduce our guest. I pulled a bio from uh, Ice Cube Press. And this is this is a guest who has written a book, so it's very important. Uh, Chris Chris Jones is a research engineer with IIHR Hydroscience and Engineering at the University of Iowa. He holds a PhD in analytical chemistry from Montana State University and a BA in chemistry and biology from Simpson College. Uh, previous career stops include the Des Moines Waterworks and the Iowa Soybean Association. As an avid outdoorsman, he enjoys fishing, bird watching, gardening, and mushroom hunting in both Iowa and Wisconsin. While he spends most of his time in Iowa City, he is especially fond of the upper Mississippi River and the driftless area of Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chris Jones. Okay, thanks for having me. Uh, Hope I can say some interesting things for your audience. (laughs) I'm sure you will. Um, I was thinking, so I I listened to the the podcast that you make with with your colleagues. Uh, We all want clean water. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a good podcast to learn about science and agricultural policy and stuff. Um, the listenership that we've cultivated here is <laughs> much less interested in learning. So we're going to try to maybe sneak in a little bit of educational content. <laughs> Some edutainment. That's, yeah, that's exactly that's what I was word. thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm always sort of, uh, you know... We always make fun here, uh, my girlfriend and I, of, you know, people say they're lifelong learners, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. uh, you know, that's, uh, that's the first thing you say after you retire. Well, I'm in a lifelong learner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's plenty of, of rich and salty politics involved in your story. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. lots of drama. You can't say once you retire, you can't just say, well, I stopped learning and I yeah. <laughs> no more learning for me your uh your retirement is official as of the 16th is that what i read yeah tuesday yep okay okay so you haven't started your lifelong learning until that point (laughs) oh no i haven't okay (laughs) no really we probably should unlearn some things if the truth (laughs) i'm definitely gonna try and unlearn some stuff well i i I don't want to to pressure you, make you feel like uh, you need to to say some inflammatory things about your situation. But uh, this retirement is 
coming a bit earlier than you anticipated, right? Yeah, but I mean, is that ever a bad thing? Uh, right. So I did plan to work at least one more year through the end of fiscal year uh, 24, which would be, you know, the end of June of 2024. And uh, the way events sort of unfolded here over the last six weeks, um, especially over the first two of those last six weeks, I just decided that it was best for me to to move on. And so I... Um, you know, what I do is uh, controversial, right? Um, that's not a secret. And it does wear you down. Um, you know, I say a lot of times I'm the most hated man in Iowa. And, <laughs> um, and so uh, I think, you know, for me, uh, what I did when in writing my uh, blog and writing the essays and talking about Iowa water quality and the politics and the culture and the economics surrounding it. Uh, the way I did it, I had a I had some hope that it might be contagious with other people in the university scene. Okay, yeah. uh, not just faculty, but just you know other people that were researchers like me. And so I'm not a faculty member, and and also with the NGOs, and it just wasn't. It just was not contagious. Um, you know, no, other people did not sort of <laughs> try to do what I do. And so I remember when I worked at the Waterworks, we I, I was in this supervisor training and um, this trainer shows a video and the video is this beach full of people. You know, there's like maybe a thousand people on this beach. And this one guy gets up and starts doing this crazy dance and He's dancing this, you know, really nutty thing uh, for maybe five minutes or something. And everybody looks at him like he's a lunatic. And then pretty soon another guy gets up and starts doing the same <laughs> crazy dance. Mm. And then very soon after the second person gets up, the whole beach gets up and is dancing, you know, a thousand people doing this crazy dance. And so the trainer asked the audience, who in that video is the leader? And inevitably, you know, a lot of people want to say, oh, it's the first guy. And the answer is no, it's not the first guy. It's the second guy. The second guy is the leader. And so in my thing, I'm the first guy, okay? <laughs> I'm the crazy guy. <laughs> and, you know, it just, there was no second person here. And so I think, you know, maybe it was time for me to hang it up. So you were a guy in search of a second guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Dancing the, on the beach. Never made the match. <laughs> what do you attribute that to, the the lack of a second guy? Why wasn't there a second guy for you? So, I, you know, when I write the blog, you know, I, you know, I don't lay this all on the farmers, right? I don't. If you read my stuff, you'll see that. And and so you don't get the condition that we have with, in Iowa with our environment without the complicity or the contribution of a lot of people. And so I say very honestly that academia is part of the problem here and not just academia, but also the NGOs and the agencies and yes, the farmers and agribusiness. And so there's lots of blame to go around here. And so in academia, you know, everybody's kind of siloed into their own individual thing and you know, if you're a PhD scientist, the absolute best job you can possibly get is a faculty job at, at a university like the University of Iowa. 
you know, an R1 university, a PhD granting institution. Mm -hmm. And once you have that job, you don't want to do anything to jeopardize your place, right? And so when we look at what the currency is in academia, well, you know, it's uh, funded proposals and it's published papers and it's um, graduate students uh, graduating with PhD uh, degrees and then but then also things like relevance, you know, where you're going to meetings and you're talking to other, you know, supposedly important people about how to <laughs> how to change things. And, you know, once you start, uh, you know, mouthing off a little bit, then, you know, those currencies suddenly start to go out the back door and then you're not, you know, you you lose your sort of stature and your relevance within a within an institution. And so I think that's a big problem in academia. And so we're all so concerned about our own little siloed thing that we don't really pay attention to what the common good is. And so that's what institutions of learning are supposed to contribute to is the common good. And I think we've uh, gotten away from that for sure. And I think it's the same with the NGOs. Um, the same sorts of problems exist with the NGOs. And you know, this thing with water quality in Iowa, um, you know, a lot of this stuff has been studied for a long, long time, you know, 50 years or more. And a lot of the problems, we know what they are. We know what the solutions are. We know, you know, the paths that we need to take. And we just don't have the courage to take these paths. And so people in academia end up studying the same thing over and over again. And I, I think that's really a a bad thing because we're doing that with taxpayer money. Right. It's just researching the same thing over and over, presenting the same solutions over and over that are then not Correct. put into or, effect. You know, <laughs> this uh, painfully slow incremental um, mm -hmm. approach to solving this. And, you know, like I say, look, I'm 62 years old. The water has been bad here my entire life. Okay. And so I think we deserve better than this incremental approach that uh, advances at the speed of a glacier to solve this. Um, we could do things now that would improve water quality now. And because it's been bad so long, I think we should do them. I just, you know, um, as I said, our listeners are not very interested in learning. So we have to start at the <laughs> with very basic questions. And this is for their benefit. Not mine, because I'm really smart, and I know. Is, is water good? Yeah, that's number one. <laughs> is it good or bad if it's clean? Yeah, so I would say that uh, people that live in large cities don't really have much to worry about. Hmm. Now, that being said, there's emerging evidence that a nitrate, uh, elevated nitrate in drinking water, can be bad for adults. And so when the standard was set, in 1974, uh, under the Safe Drinking Water Act, for nitrate, the standard was set at 10 milligrams per liter, and that was intended to be protective of infants. And so infants were vulnerable to what we call blue baby syndrome when they drank high nitrate water. Well, now we know that there's evidence out there that drinking high nitrate water over a lifetime may indeed have health effects for adults. So in most Iowa city, most uh, larger Iowa cities, I'd say the water is by and large safe, but some of these cities do have high nitrate. 
And so Des Moines would be one, Iowa City would be one, uh, Cedar Rapids would be one. And so we um, so we do have that issue. Now, if I, uh, I myself, I would not drink water from a rural, a private rural well unless I had unless I knew it had been tested. And so we've got like 7,000, about 7,000 private wells in Iowa that have been contaminated with nitrate above 10 milligram per liter. We know thousands more have been contaminated with E. coli. And so I think, you know, if you're at a rural farmstead, you know, I would not drink the water without knowing that it had, it had been tested. And so some of these smaller towns that have community systems, you know, they're going to fall somewhere in between there you know, uh, in terms of quality between, say, the, the larger cities and the private wells on the farmsteads. But the truth is, most people in the United States that live in a, in a large city have very good water. And that's because the nitrates are being filtered out of their drinking well, water. Well, yes, but, you know, so the standard is 10, right? And that mm. standard is protective, is intended to be protective of infants. And so, like, Des Moines Waterworks, when I worked there, if we were sending out water that was 9.9, you know, that was, we're good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good. And, and so we now, we now know that that standard is maybe not protective against chronic health effects. Like an entire life of 9.9 maybe isn't good. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Uh, that's right. Uh, so, you know, I think the idea of, um, you know, there's trade-offs, right? There's trade-offs with everything. And so with with your own drinking water, if you choose to drink bottled water or, you know, have some uh, point-of-use device on your kitchen sink or whatever, I mean, there's no environmental consequences to doing that. And so oh. water is treated much more efficiently at a centralized treatment plant. And so right. when you um, invest in these things or you buy bottled water, that creates a waste stream and you know so there's trade-offs but i think it's safe to say our drinking water here and around the country could be better there's no doubt if we wanted it to be better we could do that we could make it better and we could make it safer so let's back up in the chain of causation how does the nitrate how do the nitrates get in the water what's causing that so our soils here um, are excellent for crop production. And the reason they're excellent for crop production is because they have a large amount of organic matter. And organic matter, we can think of that in this context as being uh, stuff like amino acids and proteins that result from biological processes in the soil. Well, amino acids and proteins have nitrogen in them. And so when that soil is oxidized, it creates nitrate and it gets into the uh, tile lines and into the stream network. And so a lot of times people in agriculture want to say, oh, it's from the soil. It's not from the fertilizer. And so, you know, when we deplete the soil nitrogen that's there, you know, we replace it, right? We replace it with fertilizer and animal animal Mm -hmm. manures. And so we re- we tend to keep the landscape saturated with nitrogen all the time. And so whether or not it's from the fertilizer or the manure or from the soil itself, all of that nitrate that's vulnerable to loss to the stream network is there because of our actions. And so what we see in our streams and rivers 
you know, people say, well, it's from the soil, it's natural. Well, no, it's not because the things we're doing on the landscape are causing that uh, nitrogen in the soil to be available and vulnerable to loss. And then we go in and we replace that with large amounts of fertilizer and manure. And so it's the agricultural practices that we have in the production system as a whole that causes the nitrate to be in the lakes and streams and ultimately in the drinking water. And so you can't say it's just one thing. It's the whole, it's the entirety of the production system. But if it was, if it was all natural, then would it be good for us to drink all these nitrates? So it would be, so we know prior to European settlement, the nitrate here in our streams was probably less than one milligram per liter Mm -hmm. statewide. And now statewide average is probably between six and seven. And so what we're doing here on the landscape has increased it by a factor of six, right? And probably more than that, probably more like 10 to 20. But we know probably at least a factor of six. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something you said early on kind of piqued my interest uh, that you you have been called or you just think of yourself as the most hated man in Iowa. Uh, (laughs) If you could trade places with somebody, maybe put the most hated label on another man in Iowa who would you who would you rather be the most hated man in Iowa? Or woman. Well, sure, but he's we could do both. We could do a category, yeah, like the Oscars or whatever. Well, you know, I uh you know, I, I don't know. You might say who's the second most hated person in Iowa. That's probably, you know, you know, my colleagues, probably Sylvia Secchi or Dave Swartney, but um they're tied you know, for second. There's yeah. no one person. There's no one re- person responsible for this. And so we have the entire, we have an entire state, an entire state, 70,000 miles of streams, okay, that are uh, not good, that are impaired. And so you don't get that condition without the contributions and complicity of lots and lots of people. And so to say that it's, um, you know, one person in particular is disproportionately responsible for what we have, I think is wrong. Yeah. It's wrong, but do you want to do it anyway? Who's um, the most responsible? <laughs> <laughs> the well, oftentimes, oftentimes we look at Fritz Haber, who was the guy, the German chemist that developed the process that fixed nitrogen from the atmosphere. And so of course he it was a German. <laughs> Yeah, he was the father of, you know, nitrogen fertilizers. And so, you know, we oftentimes look at him and he was kind of a bad guy. He developed the Zyklon B gas that was used in the gas chambers. That's uh, pretty bad. Yeah. And then also he developed, helped develop the phosgene gas that was used in the trenches in World War One, And so... And his wife was so despondent over the sort of work that he did that she committed suicide. And so Haber was a bad guy. <laughs> and then the guy that took Haber's process and industrialized it was this guy named Bosch. And of course, everybody's heard of Bosch tools, right? And so um, he's associated with that. And so Bosch scaled up the process, industrialized it. And Bosch also was this Nazi collaborator. And so he was, he was a bad guy too. So, and since they're both dead, I'd say, let's call them <laughs> the most hated guys. Yeah. Uh, we can pin this on them. 
and they're Nazis. So that's, that's <laughs> yeah. yeah. Strike against them. This podcast is very anti-Nazi. Yeah. yeah. I take sure. a bold stance. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned, um, you know, some of the health effects on, on people, but how does the quality of the water affect, you know, the animals, the fish, the plants, everything in Iowa. A lot of people who listen to the podcast appreciate the, you know, you mentioned the the driftless area and um, different outdoor and natural resources throughout Iowa. How does it impact them? So one thing we have to recognize is not only is the water quality been altered here, but the hydrology has been altered. And so we know, uh, again, prior to European settlement, our streams were meandering streams. They were shallow. They spilled out into the floodplain very frequently. They had perennial vegetation on the along the banks. And so we know that the species, the native species, uh, you know, for the fish, for example, were clean water species like smallmouth bass and pumpkin seed sunfish. And then we came in and we straightened the streams, right? And so uh, if you look at streams across Iowa, you look and they're straight and there's no meanders in them. And when we did that, it caused them to erode downward, okay? Mm, sure. So now when you drive across the countryside, you see these streams down in these canyons. And the canyons, there's dirt along the canyons. And if you didn't know any better, you might think that that's how they should look. But that's not how they should have looked. And so the hydrology has been altered. And so none of our native species evolved to survive in that sort of hydrological condition. Then likewise, likewise when we alter the chemistry of our water, you know, and we increase the nitrogen by a factor of six, well, that ca causes other species to take advantage so like algae and the cyanobacteria, and then that causes our water to be green and turbid. And so once again, uh, when our water gets like that, then like clean water species like smallmouth bass, well, they're sight feeders, right? They catch their prey by sight. And so if our water's all muddy from the stream bank erosion, and if it's green and cloudy because of the algae, then the sight feeders can't find food. And so as this process occurs over the decades, then we replace our desirable native species with pollution tolerant species. And so that might, you know, we might, in terms of fisheries, we might think that as being carp or bullhead. And so, you know, this is a process that doesn't happen overnight. It happens over many decades. And so now, you know, our streams, the hydrology and the water quality has been so altered that the desirable species didn't evolve to live in this condition. And so that is an example just from a fisheries perspective. Do you eat the fish out of Iowa streams? Well, I think it's okay to eat a small fish like plant, panfish, bluegill and crappie and perch. I don't advise eating, you know, uh, especially the larger um, individuals of predator fish you know, the larger channel catfish and walleye. And I don't think it's a good idea to eat those because the larger fish do concentrate the pollutants. Right. So say if I had the, the choice between one large fish or two small fish, <laughs> which would be better? So actually there's advisories like that. And I think DNR <laughs> guidance like that. Uh, and so, 
there's different guidances for, you know, women of childbearing age and women that are pregnant and children and then adult men. And so they do make distinctions, just as you said there. Wow. That's interesting. Is this the reason why every fucking time I went to a lake with my daughter last year, there was a sign that said, don't swim in this poopy E. coli water? (laughs) So the E. coli thing is interesting. And so a lot of people want to talk about E. coli and the geese, and we want to blame this on the geese. Mm. And so uh, geese do indeed uh, have E. coli in their excrement, as do all vertebrates. And so geese, they do, uh, they do crap on a beach, right? We know that. And, and so that E. coli gets in the water. But here's the thing. If, if the water was clear, those E. coli would perish very rapidly because the, the ultraviolet light from the sun kills them. And so when they're exposed to light, they die very quickly, like within 15 minutes. But when our water is muddy, then that, pre- that prevents the light or the UV rays from penetrating and killing the bacteria. And so are the bacteria from the geese harmful to human beings? Well, maybe, maybe not. But when we do those tests, you know, we the quick and easy tests that we have don't tell us, well, these E. coli came from geese, these E. coli came from cattle, or they came from human beings. And so consequently, we end up impairing these waters for what we call indicator path pathogen indicators, which are the E. coli. And so I have, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not E. coli is a, a good indicator. And, you know, I say, well, it's what we have, right? It's what we have. And so I'm not for um, getting rid of E. coli as a pathogenic indicator. I think it's, it has, it is a good tool. And I think, when people see beaches that are posted uh, for E. coli, they shouldn't swim there. But then we also have beaches that are posted for the cyanobacteria, which are green, are blue-green algae. Um, and what they are is they're bacteria that can undergo photosynthesis. And so these were really some of the first life forms on Earth. We know they go back billions of years, and they're probably responsible for a lot of the oxygen that's in the atmosphere and so they take they really take advantage of excess nutrients and they can bloom uh they, their blooms can be sort of explosive where they you know they turn the water completely green and then these things when they die they release chemicals from their cells that are toxins to human beings and so a lot of our beaches get posted because of those things too I had a friend who took her children to the most beautiful natural water reserve in Missouri, and the water was completely clear. Are they doing something drastically different, like just a little bit south? Or like, is there a difference in Iowa, a reason why it's so rancid? So Missouri has areas where there is not intense farming. And so, you know, the northern uh, part of Missouri is farmed. The southern half is largely forested and so you do have good water resources in the southern half of Missouri. In northern Missouri, there are problems similar to Iowa. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, people want to blame the geese for this E. coli problem. Are there perhaps any like dead German guys that we could shift the blame to for this as well? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'd have to give it a think. I uh, I can't think of any offhand, but and you know this. 
the thing is, when I was growing up and I grew up in Iowa, it was rare to see a Canada goose. Hmm. You know, I don't think I ever saw a Canada goose until I was probably 15 to 20 years old. Uh, that's no kidding. Hmm. And now, you know, they're everywhere. And so we've, <clears throat> we've done things to um, cause them to increase their population. And that includes these stormwater detention ponds that we have in the bigger cities and then the golf courses and lawns in general. And so geese are grazers, right? They graze and they eat grass. And so our uh, love of lawns and gr green grass is, you know, giving them a food source and then the waste grain in the field. And so they can, you know, geese can live here all winter long by scrounging uh, spilled grain out in the farm fields. And so we've done things to make geese live here all year round and in larger numbers. So, you know, I don't know. I used to be kind of special to see a Canada goose and it's not anymore. Um, but <laughs> Sounds like we need to shut down the border. The, the Canada <laughs> goose, yeah, maybe, right. Uh, the Canada I goose used to be uh, a species of the wilderness and it's not anymore it's it's become habituated to us that's what we call right, it yeah this is an animal that's become habituated to us just like um the white-tailed deer has become a, a habituated to us and you know many bird species uh, robins for example right they love lawns and so the canada goose falls in that category so not only have we made the waters more uh, hospitable to the bacteria, we have made like the entire environment hospitable to all these animals that poop in the water. I mean, yeah, that's true. And, um, but you know, you have to remember that before we got here, you know, animals were there, we had a lot of animals here and they yeah. were, they were excreting their waste <laughs> onto the landscape as far as I know, waters. Yeah. but there were natural <laughs> processes that helped that waste be not so consequential. And so we've altered the landscape. We don't have any uh, vegetation out there for, you know, like seven months out of the year. And so the surface area provided by perennial vegetation, even when it's dead in the wintertime, that surface area is still there. And it that helps to detain the waste on the landscape and keep it out of the water. And then if it did get in the water, as I said, the water was clear. And the sunshine would kill the pathogens. Mm -hmm. And so we've we've altered all these processes, right, to make this condition that we have. And in terms of uh, testing, you said that you you still think testing for E. coli is still a, a useful measure of water quality. Um, but I read something, something about uh, the situation with, with you retiring and the people in the state government being upset with your posts. Uh, they may be threatening funding for uh, river sensors, stream so it's, that's Yeah, it's a done deal. They're defunded. Oh. And so we had uh, about 70 uh, sensors deployed across Iowa in streams, and they're still out there right now because, mm -hmm. you know, we're still in the fiscal year. And so they measure nitrate levels continuously, at 70 sites around the state. And then there's some other parameters that are also measured. And yes, that program was defunded. And so, you know, it's, 
been widely sort of reported in the media that, you know, we have no monitoring now, and that's not exactly true. There is other monitoring. Iowa DNR has their ambient monitoring program. Um, but the sensor um, network and the accompanying water quality information system, which was the web platform that supported it, that is going away. And that was a unique tool that Iowans had to see water quality around the state in real time. And so that is going away. And yes, the legislature did defund that. And that's your job, right? It was, yes. That mm-hmm. was my job to manage that. Did So just literally beat to fuck you over, like just from viciousness? <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, you know, I think there was, I think it'd be difficult to say that there was not some retaliatory component there. Uh-huh. You know, were there other factors? Uh, probably, yes. I mean, they just hated the fact that people could go to the website and see the the data in real time. So was it me? You know, what, it wasn't just the fact that they hated my blog. It, it was more than that. But it's really difficult for me to believe that that wasn't part of it, for sure. It's it's like that, and it's like they were looking for an excuse to get rid of this anyway. Yeah, I think that that's right. That is such a bummer. I, I have used that extensively. Like, how are you supposed to find a safe place to go with your family to... I mean, the answer is I'm not going anymore. <laughs> but, like, how is that fair as a way for us to live as citizens? And so, you know, the worse your water is, the more you need something like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, for sure, this is a quality of life issue, especially for younger people here. And um, I agree with you completely. I think, you know, we had a we had a nice tool. It was a one of a kind uh, tool. There was nothing like it really in the world. And to just discard this because of uh, some guys were a little thin skinned about what I was writing (laughs) about, I think is is a travesty. Yes. I will say that uh, at this moment, the blog is still up. Uh, it's at cjones.iihr.uiowa.edu. Do you know if there was something in particular that they disliked that you wrote or just the body well, of Well, I was told that they did. there was two in particular they didn't like. One was called um, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to, fo- to Be Farmers. Uh, that was one. <laughs> and then another one was um, God Made Me Do It and that latter one that I mentioned talked about water quality in the context of social justice. And I know that they hated that. And so I wrote that about that a few times. And I do think it is a social justice issue for sure that it is. And I know that the ones that I wrote about water and social justice were particularly disagreeable to them. They referred to it as race baiting for you to correctly point out environmental racism. So, you know, 99.7% of the farmers are in Iowa are white. Mm -hmm. That's just a fact. You know, just pointing out that fact is not race baiting. It's an objective fact. And so I might say, well, 0.3% of the farmers in Iowa are people of color. Well, is that any different? (laughs) I don't know. It's the same (laughs) thing. It's it's more it sounds more positive that way, right? I guess. <laughs> and so and then in our cities, of course, and that the one particular post was about the city of Atumwa. And and so Atumwa is is and always has been a meatpacking pa- a meatpacking town. Uh there's a lot of uh people, a lot of immigrant people in Atumwa, and 
you know, a much higher percentage of people of color in Ottumwa than there is as a state of a whole as a whole. And the drinking water in Ottumwa is impaired for nitrate. And so, you know, this presents, you know, this interesting sort of dynamic here that these people are part of the problem, right? They're part of the sort of machine where they're butchering hogs and packaging uh, hogs down there. Uh, but yet their water is polluted by people upstream that are part of the hog production system. And, you know, I don't know how you look at that and say it's not interesting. You know, it's not race baiting. It's just objective observations. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when we look at Iowa farmers, very, not all of them, not all of them, but certainly very uh, many of them are quite wealthy. When you look at the average uh, income of a farmer in Iowa, it's about 135000 a year. Well, the average income of the average Iowan, I think, is around 47000 or something like that. And so, you know, this is a justice issue without a doubt. And, you know, as I said, it's a quality of life issue, especially for young people that want to do stuff in the outdoors and recreate and and these sorts of things. And so I don't apologize at all for saying this is a social justice issue because it most certainly is. That's right. That's amazing. And isn't there, when I was reading the article, it also sounds like some of these legislators, Zumbach specifically, have intervened to help get some of these lots built. And even though they're near streams that directly, so they are like actually part, like not just part of the problem in an ambient way, but like have vested financial interests. Like it's the son-in-law of one of them. So we have 34 waters in the, in the state of Iowa that have been deemed outstanding Iowa waters. And so there are, they are our best. Mm -hmm. And one of them is Bloody Run Creek in Clayton County, Northeast Iowa. And it's a trout stream and it's a trout stream where where trout are able to naturally reproduce. So it doesn't need to be stocked. And um, yeah, Zumba's son-in-law owns a a cattle feedlot uh, there at the headwaters of Bloody Run Creek. It's permitted for 11,600 cattle. Um, The permitting process was controversial in that, you know, there was um, a lot of disagreement on whether or not the the site should be permitted. As that process was ongoing, um, Zumba called the DNR director and leaned on DNR to hasten the permitting process. And this has been widely reported in the news, okay, in the Cedar Rapids Gazette a couple of years ago. And, you know, it turned out that the guy that's running the cattle feedlot is Zumba's son-in-law. <laughs> And then two of the sensors that we had out there were on Bloody Run Creek. And one of them was just downstream from this cattle operation, about 400 yards. And so, again, this calls to question, what were these recent acts actions in the legislature retaliatory? And were they connected to this situation with the cattle feedlot and Bloody Run? And I think a reasonable person would have to wonder about that, right? I mean... Uh, who would not wonder if these things aren't related? Right. Who benefits from this data disappearing? Yeah, exactly. And who are they related to? <laughs> How? So, uh, uh, something you wrote recently, uh, something about like one percent of the state is farmers. It's less than that, I think. But twenty uh, percent of our state legislature 
claim to be farmers? Is that so? Right? Actually, it's about two two point five percent of our state are farmers. And okay. So there's eighty there's eighty thousand farmers. Now, only about half of them or less are full-time farmers. And so we throw U.S. The way USDA defines a farmer is very, very generous. And so somebody can be farming a very small number of acres, you know, maybe less than 10 acres and qualify as being called a farmer by USDA. But when we look at full-time farmers here, we actually have about 40,000, which would mean, you know, probably one to 2% of the state is a full-time farmer. And yes, about 20 to 25% of our state legislature is comprised of people that identify as farmers. Right. Identify. <laughs> <laughs> They're very over, yeah. over-represented. That's in, uh, you know, it's in yes. that email line, you know, his, yeah. her. <laughs> the farmer. <laughs> yeah. They, them, yeehaw. <laughs> Very overrepresented in state government, and also they they poll very well in terms of like public approval, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's a reason all these uh, political TV commercials. The politicians of both parties go out to a farm and they put on the farm garb, right? <laughs> and they walk around the the barnyard with some millionaire farmer. There's a reason they do that, and it's because yes, the the uh, the public does identify pretty or does consider, you know, the farmer population in a, in a positive light. That is correct. So my question is, how do we turn that around? How do we turn the public against farmers? Yeah, well, so I'm not for that. I'm not <laughs> oh, for okay. the public being against anybody. What I am, what I'm for is a public policy that addresses the drivers of our pollution. And so part of that, you know, the farmers are the practitioners, right? And so part of that includes the practitioners, but it also includes things like agribusiness and laws, which we don't have any, uh, governing this, and some other things. And so for sure, farmers are part of the equation. But I say all the time, we cannot lay this burden entirely on the shoulders of the farmers. We just can't. It's, It's much bigger than that. Yeah, I mean, they pretty much do what they're incentivized to do. So I always say all the time, you know, it's not the problem isn't that farmers are evil. The problem is that they're human beings. And so they make decisions that are in their best interest. And so many of us, if we were presented with the same sorts of decisions and um, drivers that the farmer is, we would make the same decisions. Many of us would. And so what we need to do is look at the entire system here and, you know, identify what's driving the pollution and what can we do to address it. It's interesting to me um, because I am friends with the owner of Sweet Tooth Farms, which is an urban farm in Des Moines. And the particularly city government, but everyone is constantly cracking down on urban farms and telling them they're miszoned and telling them they have to like change their setup and telling them they have to take down their like they have like an arch and you have to take it down like every couple months and they're just like regulation after regulation. It's interesting to me because it seems like urban farming and like growing food within cities instead of having a lawn is part of the solution. But because urban farmers, are often poorer and often people of color working on very small amounts of land, they don't have anyone to advocate for them. 
And so like zoning regulations crack down on them versus like elevate these like white millionaire farmers on big plots of land. I mean, that's a story of our country, right? And so the people right now, and so people that um, of lesser means and uh, people of color um, have less political uh, power. And so that's not just true of agriculture. It's true of a lot, a lot of things. Uh, but it's especially true of agriculture. And as I said in my a couple of my posts, you know, a lot of these farmers are or 99% of 99.7% of them are white. But yes, in these urban um, farming situations, you have, you know, like Hmong people and Vietnamese people mm-hmm. that were farmers and have a culture of farming. They brought a culture of farming here. And more of a an actual culture of food production than what we have here, but yet they don't have the political pull. They can't affect things in the legislature or in establishment agriculture, where you know the sixty four year old white guy up in you know Calhoun County that's not producing any food, maybe just producing corn for ethanol and, and livestock feed. You know, he's got the political power. I was wondering when we were going to say ethanol for the first time. We've mm-hmm. we waited 50 minutes before ethanol came up. Mm-hmm. So that's what I say. You know, if things we, we have a great opportunity here to affect change by getting rid of ethanol. And so about 20 uh, percent of our state's land area is used to grow corn for ethanol production. And so in effect, 20 counties. And to me, that's insane, especially <laughs> since the demand for liquid fuels is declining. It's clear that, you know, ethanol is going to die. We know that. You know, the question is, is it going to be five years or is it going to be 30 years? And so everybody on the ag side is trying to make sure it's 30 and not five. And the thing is, a 30 years is not that long ago uh, or not that long, not that far away. Right. Yeah. Like 30 years ago was 1993. Well, I remember 1993 very very clearly. And so 30 years from now is not a long time when we're talking about an enormous amount of land area. And so, and an an infrastructure that's set up to take that corn and produce it into ethanol. And so this is a time when we should be trying to imagine what Iowa will look like uh, going into the future without ethanol. But instead, the industry wants to double down on ethanol, double down, triple down, whatever, with the pipelines and the E15 and everything else, which you know is just not good policy in my estimation. It's just dumb. I feel like I don't fully understand the uh, who benefits from ethanol. I don't, right? Is there any benefit to the average Iowa citizen? to the ethanol industry besides our gas being a little cheaper they, they want to point to that right that the yeah. price pump is a little but you got to recognize that that reduction in the price is subsidized the result yeah. of yeah. The farm subsidies mm-hmm. uh, largely so we are paying for it now who does it benefit well it creates a guaranteed market for corn and so if you have land that's good good for growing corn then that land becomes more valuable. And so we see the land in Iowa, the value of farmland in Iowa has increased in lockstep with the amount of ethanol produced in this country. 
And so people that already have wealth, already have land wealth, uh, benefit by ethanol because it increases the value of their capital, which is the land. And so if you're a farmer and you have a, the government has created a guaranteed market for corn and you're farming on land that's extremely valuable, um, you know, might be worth $25,000 an acre. What are you going to grow on that land? Are you going to grow uh, greens, organic greens for, you know, Des Moines, or are you going to grow corn? Well, you're going to grow corn. You just are. And that's a, a decision that almost all of us would make when presented with a similar set of circumstances. And so we need policy change. We need policy to get people to make the decisions that benefit the common good. And so ethanol, when we look at it in the context of water pollution, the demographics of farming that result from these high land prices, and then the greenhouse gas benefit, which is extremely modest, if there's a benefit at all, <laughs> um, you know, ethanol is not contributing to the common good. So why are we doing this? We need to develop policies that will allow the owners of the of that land to remain pos- prosperous, but also uh, deliver outcomes that are beneficial to the common good. I'm hearing that we need a new George Washington Carver, but for corn, who can invent a bunch of crazy things made out of corn for all the <laughs> ethanol people to do. <laughs> Build our houses out of corn. I'm corn sure palace. people that, I'm sure there's people that believe that. And, <laughs> I've been drinking um, a lot of Iowa well water, so I believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, so there's things we could do, and so a lot of people you know, want to, you know, like beef gets a bad rap, right? And we hear that beef is the worst thing you can eat. Well, maybe if it's raised in eastern Colorado that gets eight inches of rain and you got to ship in alfalfa and you got to tap into the aquifer to get them water to drink. But here in Iowa, you know, grazed cattle would be a good thing for us to consider again. We used to have a lot of cattle on pasture and we don't anymore. And so, for example, could you grow, could you put solar panels on land and then have cattle grazing amongst them? And we know there are systems like that. And so that's one idea is to have, you know, solar panels on taller pedestals and the cattle can move around and graze and there's perennial grasses. That's kind of a nice system that would improve water quality and deliver other environmental outcomes that would be beneficial to us. But how do you make that happen? You need policy. The reason we have an ethanol industry is because of policy. We had a renewable fuel standard that helped create the industry. So it we can do it. It's possible. We've shown we could do it. We created this monstrous, you know, sort of behemoth with ethanol. We ought to be able to do it with other stuff. Yeah. We brought it into this world. We can take it out. Damn straight. (laughs) I would love it if I could see more cows. I always get excited when I see a a little cow when I'm driving around. This is a great idea. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I would say, you know, don't knee jerk uh, the idea about cattle and the cow farts and all that. Um, Cool. Cattle cattle could uh, help 
help us here create a, a more sustainable system. I'm very anti-pig, so I'm really glad that you're telling me it's the cute ones. Okay. That could be beneficial. <laughs> Pigs are closer to humans, though. Maybe that's why you don't like. I'm very just opposed to the entire. My family had a hog farm, and I just oh, that's like, right. don't like pigs. I forgot about that. <laughs> They're <laughs> awful. <laughs> well, we're we're kind of like over like uh, over capacity on pigs. We got a lot of those. We got too many pigs. Yeah. Well, we're uh, we're coming up on an hour, which is pretty much what we do on the show. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you guys. I hope I help you learn something and hope I help your audience learn something. Yeah. They're the ones who need uh, it, not, they, not us. Huh? They're the, the, the audience is the, they need your help that we are already yeah, smart, so, actually. So buy my book. The book is called <laughs> The Swamp Republic. Uh, again, it's available through Ice Cube Press. And, you know, you might start looking at the um, little libraries. They might be appearing in the little <laughs> library screen. So if you see it in there, grab it and read my book. And it tells everything you need to know. Yeah, it's Thank very, you so much. You are like the writing. coolest guest. I haven't been on here in four months, but I really wanted to hear what you had to say. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, and also wanted to, you're also on Substack now. People should know about that. I am, yeah. Yeah, yeah. riverraccoon.substack.com. Which is also his Twitter handle, River Raccoon. Yeah, uh, you got to have some, uh, you know, some continuity, right? Yeah. <laughs> Branding. Yeah. Uh, also, the We All Want Clean Water podcast, which if you listen to our podcast, I'm sure you're aware of that one as well. Uh, they haven't put out any episodes for a couple of months. We have so been, if, been uh, sort of idle for a while. Yeah. We got. Do you have any future plans? Uh, well, as I told you, I'm going to start unlearning things soon. So that's my <laughs> number one on the list. So the podcast, will it'll get more fun as you get dumber. Yeah. <laughs> That's been our strategy. That's what happens with our podcast. <laughs> yeah. I've just been so struck by your empathy. That's just not something we yeah. do here on our podcast. Oh. Well, <laughs> like every actor, I mean, I didn't hear you say anything nice about Zombok. But every other person, <laughs> you seem to like find the humanity in them. And I think that's such a beautiful way to approach this problem. Yeah. Well, thank you. And there's also a uh, an event at Prairie Lights Bookstore on May 19th. That's right. And so I'm, a, I'm doing a reading there. And uh, if anybody hasn't gotten enough of me by now, they can get some more there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I plan on coming to that and uh, buying a copy of the book in person. All right. Very good. Great. Thank you so much, Chris. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. You back? All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we're back. Uh, I chickened out. I didn't want to <laughs> listen. Chris Jones is like too. He's above this. <laughs> he has a PhD. <laughs> uh, but we did get a couple of voicemails between the last episode and this episode, <laughs> and we're not going to not play the voicemails, but I didn't feel like wasting another five minutes of this guy's time (laughs) but uh yeah let's let's jump into this if you would like to call the show leave your own voicemails uh the number is 319-849-8733 and uh here's the first one we got Uh, you shouldn't have messages right here don't don't talk to me about nothing but uh you know talking down there and all these things you know, you know, you can do anything you want. You can say whatever you want. But uh, guys like me, you get a type of put you in your goddamn place. And I know, and I know 
you ain't got nothing to do with this, and you're going to say that all day. And I'm going to, listen, I ain't going to hear it. You did what you did, and I'm uh, I'm holding you accountable for that. And I think one of these days y'all are going to come around to the truth of the matter. And that is all I can say to you sons of bitches that that are talking to me about all that garbage shit. Justin, do you screen these? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> uh, what did you pick up anything from that? Not really. <laughs> Good, uh, well made point, uh, sir. <laughs> someone's clearly upset about something. Um, hostility. I picked up hostility. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like they. It was directed at us, maybe, but he didn't say anyone's name or anything. There was specific. nothing specific. Yeah. Yeah. But, Blanket I mean, condemnation. I've said many times, you know, if you have a bone to pick with us, I'd love for you to call in, air out your, air out your beef <laughs> with us. <laughs> we'll play it on the show. We'll we'll talk it out. Um, yeah, I heard. I heard Iowa needs more beef. Actually. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And we're the people to increase beef production. <laughs> Uh, but I don't know what, what that guy's specific problem was, so it's not much else to say. So let me play voicemail number two. This is Brockhampton Nipper. I'm just calling to apologize <laughs> on behalf of my father, Chandis Nipper, uh, who I believe Chandis? called this number. Uh, he has wet mouth disease, so he doesn't really understand what he's doing uh, or where he is or what he is. Um, he's very angry. He's very violent. And uh, we have... Oh, God done what needs to be done. Uh, once again, I appreciate your patience and your graciousness in accepting this apology, which I'm sure you will. Mm. Otherwise, we'll have other problems. Thank you. Ooh, okay. I guess that was an offer we can't refuse. We have to accept the apology. <laughs> so that was Brock Hampton Nipper? I don't believe I've heard from him before. It's mostly um, oh God, what's his name? Truck, Trunt, Trab. Trab, that's him. Trunt, yeah. Trunt. <laughs> I'm sending her Trunt right now. <laughs> who sending who Trunt? <laughs> These are real people that call us. <laughs> yeah, I mean Mavis as an idea to pass along to her future grandchildren. Yeah. yeah. Uh. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that was a, a sort of an undercurrent of like a threatening aura to those. Um, Agro family. I think we're at peace with the Nipper clan as of now, but maybe not. It's a tenuous <laughs> peace, I guess. To be done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chandis, was that his name? <laughs> Is that what he said? Chandis? Yes, Chandis. I mean, I... I empathize, I guess. Like he seems to have a condition, and the family seems to yeah, wet mouth have disease. To take I drastic mean, measures to extremely high nitrate levels in the Nipper yeah. Clan wells. So it's to be expected. Some of the but wettest mouths around. I bet they are a, a private it. well family. <laughs> They've got to be a private well family. I think that's how you get Margaret's disease as well. They so. probably lost members of their clan to the private wells, like. <laughs> Accid- accidents happen <laughs> like baby jessica <laughs> <laughs> well anyway uh if, again if you want to talk to us about anything 
going on in your head. 319-849-8733. And uh, because of the, the kind of threats we've received and the uh, the discomfort I would feel sharing my home address with anyone, we also have a P.O. box for the show now. Uh, so if you would like to send your oh, cursed gosh. trinkets to Rock Hard Caucus, uh, <laughs> P.O. Box 5336 in Coralville, Iowa, 52241. So not only can you call, you can also uh, send real physical oh, no. things. This is a terrible idea. Don't Justin. make me regret this. <laughs> Don't send poop. <laughs> It's full of nitrates. Yeah, we got enough of those. <laughs> uh, and we're going to close out with some music now. I think we're ready to go, right? We've had enough yeah, of this. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, all right. Uh, we're going to close out with some music from the band, and I don't know how to pronounce this, Arias. It's like Arias with two eyes. A-R-I-I-A-S. Um, Keenan Crow belongs to this group of uh, one Iowa, Keenan Crow. And I should have maybe asked them how to say the name of the band. But this is their brand new track called Blue Hour. And we're going to hear that now to close out the show. And uh, you can find them at ariasband.com. And again, that's A-R-I-I-A-S, band.com. So thank you, Keenan, for sending me this track. And thank you all for listening. And thank you to Chris Jones for speaking intelligently for once on this podcast. <laughs> Terry 